So, now we go into verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, no one would have looked for a second. But showing its fault, God says to them, and then He quotes Jeremiah 31, 31, Look, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will complete a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I had no regard for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will establish with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, and I will inscribe them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And there will be no need at all for each one to teach his countrymen or one to teach his brother, saying, Know the Lord, since they will all know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their evil deeds and their sins, and I will remember no longer. When he speaks of a new covenant, he makes the first obsolete. Now what is growing obsolete and aging is about to disappear. For the first covenant, been, if it had not been faultless... If there had been no fault in the first covenant, his words, not mine, there would have been no need for a second. Listen, we all know that Christ established a new covenant. Because right before he died, he said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. Made a new covenant. So he makes it very clear, this is my new covenant with you. And John makes that point, too, and says, we have a new covenant. It's kind of not new, because it feels a lot like the first one, because it's the same two laws, love God and love others. But it's a new covenant, because it's enacted in better promises, with blood. So you can't argue that there's not a new covenant, because Christ said it in His own words. So the reality that He now says is this, why do you need a new covenant if the other one was perfect? Why do you need a new covenant? The first one did exactly what it was supposed, to, what people thought it should have done, perfect people. The only reason you bring something new is because the old one is not working. Okay? And so this is the point he makes. Why do we have a new covenant if the first one was okay? But showing its fault. Now here's the beauty. Once again, we talked about the very first night that we did this. Why does he quote the First Testament so much? Because the First Testament is where you find the Mosaic Covenant. And two, because it bears authority to the Jews. He doesn't go to the Gospels and say, look, Gospels are contradicting First Covenant. Because that's a he said, he said kind of a thing. He goes right back to the New Covenant, or the Old Covenant. Because here's the reality. Jeremiah 31.31 is inside of the Old Covenant. The prophets were mediators of the Old Covenant. So therefore, if the prophets are the mediators of the New Covenant, then when they speak, they are speaking from... Sorry, let me back up. If the prophets are the mediators of the Old Mosaic Covenant, then when they speak, they speak out of the Old Mosaic Covenant. Therefore, what they say is is if the law is saying that. And even more so because the law is rules where the prophet is actually the voice of God. Thus saith the Lord. And so he goes back to the prophet and he says, Look, the Mosaic Covenant said that it was temporary. The prophet, who nobody argues 
whether he belongs to God or not. Said that the Mosaic Covenant is temporary. God, speaking through the prophet, said that the Old Covenant was temporary. And not just temporarily, but had faults. And this is your silver bullet passage, so to speak. Because you can't argue with the covenant and the prophet and God when it says, I'm going to be replaced one day. The covenant, not God. So he says this, quoting Jeremiah, Look, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will complete a new covenant. Okay? Complete, establish. These are all the same words. The idea is that if he's saying he's going to complete something, then the first one is not complete. It's lacking in something. Okay? And what it's lacking is what it's pointing towards. We talked about this last week. The whole point of the Mosaic Covenant was not to perfect you, but to point you towards the thing that it would perfect you. Therefore, until that thing comes and perfects you, the Mosaic Covenant is not complete because the thing that it points to has not arrived yet. And that's what he's making here. There's a day coming when the whole purpose of the Mosaic Covenant will be seen. And the word complete and establish or make are all synonymous here. They can be translated in any one of those ways. So some of your translations might have a different word. A new covenant. Okay, new, meaning different, unlike the first. Now some people like to say that this new covenant is just a ratification or a renewal of the first covenant. But the problem is he says new. And the author uses the language that the other one has fault, and that the other one is obsolete, and the other one is done away with, and aging. And so it's hard to say that this is a renewal, because that's not the word that's being used here in multiple different ways. Um, With Israel and the house of Judah, it will not be like the previous covenant. Now there you go, that's a strong contrast. How can you say we're renewing something, and then turn around saying, but it's not like the other one? Well, renewing means that you're just... When you renew your vows and your marriage, it's not a new marriage. And if you start saying, but it's not going to be like that marriage, and your wife is going to be a little confused, like, what do you mean? Okay. Um, so the reality is like, and I know like things are going to be different, that kind of stuff, but you're hoping that things will be better, or renewed, or whatever, I don't know, but it's a renewal. It's not like you're changing your relationship with them, you're changing the laws, you're changing your vows. It's a renewal. Everything's still the same. So he says it's not like the other one, period. It's not going to be like it. Well, how is it not going to be like it? Notice he says, I made this one with the day that with their fathers and the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they did not continue my covenant and I had no regard for them. Now notice that. They did not continue the Mosaic covenant. They did not obey it. They didn't keep it. They didn't meet the requirements of it. And that's going back to what we talked in chapter 7. If the Mosaic Covenant could really truly perfect them, then why did they have so much trouble continuing it? Why did they have so much trouble obeying it? So he's tying into that. They failed to meet the requirements of the Mosaic Covenant. And therefore, if they failed to meet the requirements of the Mosaic Covenant, they could not be perfected. And God doesn't fail in perfecting you. And I think this is so very important. If you think the Mosaic Covenant saves you, or that you have to obey it to become saved, then you're basically saying that God failed. 
Because no one's ever been able to meet the requirements of the covenant. Nobody's been able to obey it perfectly. Nobody's been able to become perfect under it. So therefore, God is fault. If it's meant to save and perfect, then God failed coming up with something that would perfect you. And that's dangerous. <laughs> but if you understand that the purpose of the Mosaic Covenant was not to perfect you, but to point to the one that was greater and would perfect you, then God didn't fail in the giving of the law. It accomplished exactly what it meant to do because thousands upon millions of people got saved when Christ came throughout history. And without the law, we would have not known sin and our need for Christ, as Paul says. And so God did not fail in giving the Mosaic Covenant. The people failed to meet the requirements. That's important. He puts the blame where it belongs. 4, verse 10. For this is the new covenant that I will establish with the house of Israel after those days. The Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and I will scribe them on their hearts. First way that it's different. No longer will you go to a piece of paper and read words that tell you what God's righteousness is. And that there's only 613 for all areas of life. Now God is going to come and He's going to literally come into your heart and He's going to chisel His law onto your heart. And it's going to be part of you. It's going to be in you. It is going to be you. Now, in hindsight, we know that that is the blood of Christ and the indwelling of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And now, we have a Holy Spirit who can speak to every single situation that we're in and every person that we're with and every area of our life and say, this is what I want you to do. This is what righteousness looks like. This is what righteousness sounds like. And He can speak to every area of, well, just listen. And rules on the law don't transform you. But a Holy Spirit inside of you does transform you. And so the reality is, this is the first way it's different. I'm going to carve them into your heart. It's going to be a part of you. And that's important, because the heart in the ancient world, and even today, is the seat of our will, choices, and desire. Out of the heart is what we desire. Out of the heart is what we, the choices that we make. And out of the heart is our will. Okay? This is why the, God says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your will, with all your choices, with all your desires. And this is why our heart is meant to obey the Holy Spirit that's being carved into our heart. Where the world will say, Just follow your heart. Just do it. Have it your way. You deserve it. It's an I universe. Over and over and over again we're told that. And the Bible says the heart is evil and wicked and leads to destruction. Out of the heart comes desire which leads to sin, which leads to death. James chapter 2. And so here's the reality. Your heart cannot produce life because it is dead and evil. Therefore it has to be recarved, so to speak. And this is why Paul uses the language circumcision of the heart. It needs to be recut and remarked by God. And when we get to the First Testament, other passages, you'll see that you will not have a heart of stone, but a new heart that can actually beat. And that's important because the only way that you can ever have a new heart, according to God, all throughout the Bible, is through regeneration. All throughout the Bible, without the Holy Spirit, your heart is dead and cold. 
And only through regeneration can you have a new heart. And that's an important theme that goes all throughout the Bible. And so this is how the first way that it'll be different. And then he goes on and says this, And I will inscribe them in their hearts, and they will be, I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will there be a need for all of each... And there will no be no need at all for each one to teach his countrymen, for each one to teach his brothers, saying, Know the Lord, since they will all know me from the least to the greatest. So the second way is that He will be our God and we will be His people in a much more intimate way. Now Israel were the people of God, but they didn't act like it. Okay, God, even through Isaiah, says, Name your children, not my people. <laughs> and then name your other child, you are my people. And then when we get to the Ephesians and First Peter, they both say, once you were not a people of God, but now you are a people of God. And the context is Jesus Christ. So in some ways, Israel was the people of God because they were chosen by Him. But all throughout the Bible, especially in the Gospel of John and in First John, Jesus and God make the point that we know who your Father is by the way that you act. And Israel was never able to act righteously because the law could not perfect you. So therefore, they operated from a cold, evil heart. Therefore, they revealed that their true father really was Satan. And that's the point that First John is making. He literally says it. Your father is the devil. And in chapter 8 of John, Jesus looks at the Pharisees and says, Your father is the devil. And then that's the other layer to the, if you really knew the Father and He was your Father, then you would know Me. But because you don't, then you reveal who your Father really is. And that's true of all of us. That's true of all of us. And so in some ways you can be chosen by God and belong to God, but until you actually know God in a true intimate way, you can never really truly belong to Him and He be your God. And when we get into a Hosea, he'll actually use the language that no longer will you call me master, but you will call me husband, which is a more intimate language here. And so now our intimacy with God can be so much greater because there will no longer be sin and rebellion between the two of us. Now there will be the blood of Christ binding us together and indwelling us and transforming us until eventually sin is completely removed. And as Ephesians says, the barrier wall between God and man is torn completely down. The third way that this new covenant is better is that we'll no longer need people to teach us. Which you're probably sitting here right now thinking, why am I here? <laughs> okay, why do I go to church and listen to a pastor? Right, now listen, it does not mean that we don't need teachers anymore. Because you can't argue that. Or you can't argue that we don't need teachers anymore because if you go right in the New Testament, Timothy and Titus and Thessalonians, they are, are we need teachers. Okay? And we all have different gifts. And, and I don't mean just like teachers like what I'm doing right now. Some of us, there's different kinds of teachers. There's teachers with experience in parenting. There's teachers with experience in witnessing. Like, I need a lot of help in relating to people <laughs> and teaching in that one. Um, actually starting conversations and having conversations and that kind of stuff and feeling sympathetic towards people. Um, not that I got a cold, dead heart, but sometimes like, you, you made your bed lying in it. Okay? So... <laughs> Um, we all need teachers in different ways. So in some ways, we're all teachers. 
but we're different kinds of teachers in different areas of the Christian life and what it means to be a Christian and know God and act like Him and have our lives tell the truth about God. I just be, happen to be doing a teaching role right now in a certain facet of who God is. But it doesn't mean we no longer need that anymore. What he's talking about as the context of Jeremiah is a tribal-like teacher. In the ancient world, they had patriarchs, then prophets and kings and priests. And the only way you could be a patriarch or a tribal leader is if you were the firstborn son of a certain firstborn son. Only the firstborn and the firstborn and the firstborn and the firstborn going back could be a leader. That's the only way you could become a king, whether you're a tribal king or a national king. The only way you could be a priest is if you're the firstborn son of a certain tribe, Levi. The only way you could become a prophet is if God came down and chose you and believe me, there's not a lot of people signing up for the prophets. I know a lot of people are like, oh, it'd be so cool to be a prophet. But if you ever read the prophets, I think if God called me to be a prophet, I'd probably kill myself. Okay, now don't get me wrong, it would be cool. And I know if God chose me, I, I obey and I follow, hopefully. But at the same time, like, how many times did Jeremiah say, I want to commit suicide? How many times did people try to assassinate him? How many times did Isaiah and Isaiah said, I'm done, that's it. Elijah literally quit, and God was so ticked, he fired him on the spot. And he literally said, God, I'm done. I hate being a prophet. It's a lonely, depressing life. Nobody was lining up for those roles. Okay? Therefore, and the reason was because they were the only ones anointed. The only people who would have the Holy Spirit come upon them were ones who were anointed. And only king, priests, and prophets got anointed. And they could lose it, too. That's why David, after he raped Bathsheba and murdered her husband, said, Oh, please, God, do not take the Holy Spirit away from me. Because he could lose it. Now we sing that in our praise songs, and it's so theologically wrong, because we're sealed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And we don't have to pray that or fear that anymore. And so what it meant was, the only hope that you had of ever knowing God was through the anointed one. The only hope that you could ever have of gaining access to God was through the anointed one. The only one that had the Spirit of God upon them that could really say, thus saith the Lord, was the prophet. The only one who really had the Spirit of God on them could say, I will go into the tabernacle on your behalf and anoint you because no Jew was allowed in the tabernacle. Or they would be killed, only Levi was. And the only person who could really truly judge and deal out judgment and lead you and say, I know where God wants us to go, was the king. And so literally the whole nation was completely dependent upon the king for leading them, the prophet for revealing the will of God, and the priest for giving them access to God. That, that was it. Without those three offices, you had no access to God. Period. You had no idea what God wanted to do. Now, I'm not saying that God never spoke to anybody. Boaz obviously had a great relationship with God and got things way better than most of the priests and the kings did. Why wasn't he made a king? That's my question. Um, maybe he wouldn't have been great a king if he had that much power. Um, and there was lots of people that could, like, not like what you and I have through the Holy Spirit. And so what it really meant is that the king went off the rails, if the priest went off the rails, if the prophet went off the rails, the whole nation went off the rails. And that's what happened. I mean, the whole book of Kings is all the kings are failing. And what happens? The nation goes off the rails. And God doesn't condemn the nations. He goes to the kings and he says, you're at fault. You've got the, the priest at the end of Judges. You've got a priest who's cutting his wife up into 12 pieces and mailing her across the nation. 
And then after, immediately after this says that is in those days Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Who does he blame for the nation going off the rails? The leader who's cutting his wife up into 12 pieces. It's because he did that and everybody thought, well, if he's a priest of God, it must be okay. And then they started doing it. And then you got the prophets too. If Elijah's quitting on the spot and he's probably the greatest prophet ever, then why can't I just quit? And that's the whole point. He's not saying you don't need teachers anymore. He's like, no longer will your relationship be completely dependent on a few anointed people who don't really have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And when they screw up, the whole entire nation will go off the rails. Now, your access to God will be completely dependent upon the anointed the one that is your high priest who sits on the right hand of God, King, and he blazes a trail and comes in and dwells in you and writes his law on your hearts, prophet. And now you have the prophet speaking the will of God to you because he's in your heart. And you have a king because he sits on the throne and he's in you, therefore you kind of sit on the throne with him. And he's your high priest and he's in you, therefore you have access to heaven. And now your access to God and knowing God is completely dependent upon that Messiah. Which Hebrew means anointed and then Greek is Christ. The anointed one. And that's why J.R.R. Tolkien does a beautiful picture of painting that the only way that the ring which can enslave and control all people, could really truly be defeated, is when the whole nation was being led by Gandalf the prophet, Frodo the suffering servant, and the high priest, who carries the burdens of the world and throws it into the pit, and the king who returns to rule over them all and unite them all. And what's so phenomenal is J.R.R. Tolkien said, I did not set out to write a Christian story, but because he lived and breathed Christ so much, it just creatively out of him. And he put into all three of those offices in a fantasy story. And that's the idea. Now your relationship is completely dependent upon that tribal leader. And that tribal leader is God. That tribal leader is your perfect sacrifice. That tribal leader lives inside of you. That tribal leader is giving you access to God. Because the law spoke of the tribe of Levi. But the law said nothing about Judah. And Judah is superior to Levi. And that's what he's making here in Jeremiah. So we still need teachers. Because we need, God speaks to us in different ways. And Paul makes the point that we have different gifts in the body of Christ. And we need to be helping each other. But you having an intimate conversational life with God is not dependent upon me. If I go off the rails, you don't have to go off the rails. If I am such a sinner that I am sacrificing without repentance, you still can go to Christ and know that your sins are atoned for, even when I'm screwing the sacrifice up in my life. And that's the reality. With your parents, with your pastors, with your counselors, with your teachers, with your mentors, if they go off the rail, and sometimes we do, right? We know lots of stories where we're completely shocked how somebody had this secret sin or they went off the rail or something like that. And yes, sometimes it makes us throw back a little bit and we question like, okay, what? what it, and we may question what we were taught and how we were decided. But in the end, it says nothing about your relationship with God. In the first covenant, it said everything about your relationship with God. And that's what makes us so cool. That's why it's so important that you understand that the law said nothing about 
a priest and a king from Levi. Because when they went off the rails, you go off the rails. Does that make sense? And that's way, way better for your salvation to be completely dependent upon that tribal leader than all of those guys. And that's the whole point. Because one of the reasons we go through the prophets and the kings and the priests is so that you keep seeing that not only does my inability to meet the requirements of the law make me want to desire a Savior, but the fact that all of my anointed Saviors are failing makes me desire some greater anointed one. And look, sometimes we, you've had kids and you've taught them and lead them, and sometimes you realize you've just got to step back and just watch them bang their head against the wall over and over until they realize that they need to surrender and get, ask for help. And that's kind of why Jesus waited for a thousand years. He needed to let humanity bang their head against the wall over and over again, trying to save themselves with their governments and their religions and all that kind of stuff before he could step in and we could really truly say, oh, thank you, God, praise Jesus. Because if Jesus would have shown up right after the garden, I don't know if an Adam and Eve would have been ready to surrender to that kind of a Savior because they hadn't exhausted their own skills yet. That kind of makes sense. And I'm not saying that's the only reason he waited. There's 50 million reasons, and only he knows 90% of them. But (laughs) that's one of them. That's one of them. So you will not have a tribal god, that you're a tribal leader that you're completely dependent upon. Since you all know me, from the greatest to the least, and that's important, because only the greats were the anointed. But now we're all, and that's what we mean by the priesthood of believers. And that's why First Peter says, you've all been made a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a special possession belonging to God. Because that was only the anointed ones. But we're all anointed now, because we're all part of the tabernacle, because we're all living stones being built into the living stone, Jesus Christ. And that's so important to understand because we all have access. Now, what the priesthood of believers does not mean and how we've abused it is, I don't need to go to church. Uh, church is screwed up and they're making a lot of mistakes. And I don't need some pastor to tell me what the right way and how to live my life and that kind of stuff. I just need me and Jesus. That's not what the priesthood of believers. Okay? Because he's going to say later in the chapter, do not give up gathering together like others before us have. That's a dangerous thing. No man is an island. And if Christ died for the church, then we shouldn't abandon the church. And yes, it screws up, but so do you. But the reality of the priesthood of the believer is not that I don't need the church or each other. It means that I'm not completely dependent upon you to know God. But I need you to know God better. It's just that if you fail, my relationship with God doesn't automatically guarantee you fail. Does that kind of make sense? And that's the problem. The Catholic Church tried to start becoming the sole anointed one. That only if you knew Latin could you lead the people in the will of God. That only if you were a father who had given up everything in the world, abandoned the material realm because it's bad, and and you're more spiritual because you abandoned the material realm, could you lead people in the Eucharist and the Mass. And the Catholic Church started going back to that tribalism where the whole church was completely dependent on the priest and the father. And that's why Luther said, no, Christ is our mediator. That's what he meant. That's, and, we, and like everything, we always go to an extreme. 
We always go to the stream. Like, well, then that doesn't mean I mean I don't need anybody now. And then he says this, verse 12. Here's, which one am I on now? Am I on four? <laughs> Whatever comes after the last one I say, I think I'm on four. For I will be merciful toward their evil deeds, and their sins I will remember no longer. And here, once again, your evil deeds, your evil. I will be merciful towards them. Why can I show you mercy now? True mercy. See, the mercy he was showing them in the First Testament was he just chose not to punish them, and therefore he violated his justice. Because if he wasn't punishing sin, he's not just. But he loved us too much to wipe us all out. Because if he punished every sin committed in the First Testament, you and I wouldn't be here because there would be nobody to father us or mother us. They would all be dead. And so he chose to violate his justice and just not kill them all. But that's not merciful. That's unjust. But with Jesus Christ... Now God's wrath can actually be poured out and He can execute all of His justice on Jesus. But because it's poured out on Jesus, our brother, who is a human, then we can also truly receive the mercy of God. Because now the mercy isn't just God saying, well, I'll just look the other way right now because I love you too much just to wipe you off the face of earth. But now He can, and I know that sounds really bad. I don't mean to make God sound that bad. But... Now he can truly say, I can give you mercy because I really, truly have justly punished sin and forgiven you. Because remember, grace cost a terrible price. And that's the point that Romans chapter 3, I think it's 8 or 6, is saying. That he overlooked all the sins and therefore did not show justice until Christ. And the perfect way to see that is the axes of the cross. The cross brings the justice and the grace of God perfectly together. Because without the cross, you cannot have both. When you show grace, you're not just. And when you show justice, you're not graceful and loving. Unless there's a sacrifice. And he's the only one who can do the sacrifice. And so therefore, now he can truly say, I will remember your sins no more. That's the fourth one. The covenant could never really truly atone for your sins. An animal being pulled against its will and killed could not cover your horrible, gross, violating, nasty, violent sins before a holy, righteous God. And therefore, He would temporarily overlook your sins. But they were not forgiven. Truly. I mean, they were forgiven in a sense that you still could live. And God would still talk to you. And He would still lead you. But they were not forgiven in the sense that you could truly come into the literal presence of God and have an intimate relationship with Him without any kind of sin or rebellion between you and Him. There's a difference between mom and dad overlooking your sins because they love you so much and they'll never abandon you. And mom and dad actually truly being able to have a relationship with you because you've truly repented and truly forgiven. Like, I mean, we know that. When we keep sinning and rebelling, we know that mom and dad will always love us no matter what. But that doesn't mean they're going to trust us. That doesn't mean there's a good relationship there. That doesn't mean that they can truly overlook what we've done when we just keep doing it. But when there's true repentance and true forgiveness, they can truly love covers a multitude of sins and you can begin to move on and restore the relationship. And so God loved the world so much 
that he still stayed with Israel. He still loved them. He still pursued them. He refused to divorce them. But he never really could truly be with them. And he says that in Exodus when he says, the golden calf, that I'm not going to go with you. My angel will go with you. He will lead you. I will not abandon you. I will not violate my promises in the Abrahamic covenant. One day I will send my Messiah. He doesn't say that, but that's what he's kind of saying. But right now, I can't be with you, Israel. And he's a loving and forgiving God, and he's saying that. Jesus says, how much longer must I put up with you people? It's only when Jesus truly, willfully, through his own perfect body, makes a perfect sacrifice for us, can we really, truly be forgiven to the point that our debt is erased, the barrier is destroyed, sin is removed, and we can have a trusting, loving, intimate relationship with God. And the Mosaic Covenant could not bring that. And the Mosaic Covenant is saying that about itself. Because the prophet is the tribal mediator leader over the Mosaic Covenant. Does that make sense? Any questions? When, verse 13, he speaks of a new covenant, he makes the first obsolete. Just in case you still weren't convinced that it was not a renewal, the word obsolete is done. It's obsolete. There's no reason for it anymore because it's, it's useless. It does. If you now have a Savior here who's a more perfect tribal leader, who's a more perfect access to God, then there is no purpose for the inferior anymore. And then he says, what is aging is about to disappear. Then this is kind of an unfortunate word to pick. But the Greek word here is not that it's like fading away or just not as bright. It means actively being destroyed. Now, does the law still serve a purpose today? Yes, we talked about that last week. The law helps me Teach me how to recognize the Holy Spirit's voice. The law kind of gives me examples of what it means to love God and love others. Because even with the Holy Spirit, I can still be very stupid on what it means to love people, love God and love others. The law, I can use it in my life to reveal what sin is so I can surrender more areas. I can use it in other people's life to point out the need for Jesus. But one day, when the books are open, and those who said, I choose to work my way into heaven are found in that book and they didn't meet the requirements so they go to hell. And the other ones who said, I choose to surrender to the greater anointed Messiah and my high priest to get to heaven. And they're found in the book, Lamb's Book of Life. Therefore, they go to heaven. Once that day comes, then there's no reason for the law anymore. Because the law has condemned all those who said they'll stay under the law. And the law has pointed to Christ all those who got the purpose of the law. And so... But guess what will still be eternal for all eternity? Our King and High Priest in heaven. And we will be with Him. And so this is what it means. That it's disappearing. does not mean that it's just not important. It means it's actively being made obsolete, being destroyed, done away with. Because the closer and closer we get to the second coming, the less and less need we need for the law. And I don't mean that literally. Because... Things could get worse and we need the law even more. But as in a prophetic kind of a sense. Questions? Comments? Ezekiel 11, verse 18. Ezekiel 11, verse 18. The very powerful argument. Look, the Word of God is so sufficient that if only we had one passage, that would be enough. 
Right? But because God likes to make his point through repetition, and so do teachers, um, he's got other passages too. And Ezekiel 11 verse 18 is one of those. He says, verse 17, Therefore say, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. When I regather you from the peoples and assemble you in the lands where you have been dispersed, I will give you back your country of Israel. When they return to it, they will remove from it all the detestable things and all its abominations. I will give them one heart. I will put a new spirit with them. And I will remove their hearts of stone from their bodies and I will give them tender hearts. Notice that we'll have one heart. How in the world do we have one heart? Because it's called the Holy Spirit. There are times that I've walked into things. I remember when I was renting my tuxedo. I mean, there's lots of times, but this one, when I was getting married, I was renting my tux, and I walked in this tux rental place, and I walked in, and I was talking talking to the guy that owned it, and I was like, I knew without a doubt that he was a Christian. Something just connected us in a way that was just unspeakable without words. But I don't know why. I didn't ask. I'm an introvert, so I kept on going. And then later I was like, I was convinced. I knew it. So then I got married, went on the honeymoon. A couple months later, this guy invited me to this Bible study. It was really early in the morning on a Friday. And I went into Scramblers to sit down for this Bible study. And this guy sat down to me and I turned to say hi. And it was him. And I can't tell you how many times that's happened. Because we have one heart. And I'm not saying that will happen every single time you meet a believer and all that kind of stuff. And, and it doesn't say anything about you or them if it doesn't happen with a very believer. But... There's just something about having that one heart, a new heart. Not one of stone, but a tender one. And that's the point that he makes here. Joel chapter 2, verse 28. He says, After all this, I will pour out my spirit on all kinds of people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, not just your prophets, but everybody will prophesy. Everybody will be a prophet. Everybody will know the will of God. Your elderly will have relevatory dreams, not just the prophets. Everybody will have access to the visions of God. Your young men will see prophetic visions. Even on male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will produce portents both in the sky and on earth, blood and fire columns and smoke. The sunlight will be turned to darkness. This is the passage that Peter quotes in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes on him to explain what's happening. Okay? So everybody will have this. In some ways, the office of prophet is dead and gone. But in some ways, it's not dead and gone because we're all prophets. No longer is there somebody who says, I had the gift of prophecy, because the reality is we all do. We're all prophets. And what is a prophet? 99% of the time, the prophets did not predict the future. There's very little prediction of the future in the prophets. That's just what we gravitate towards because it's cool. 99% of the time, the prophets just spoke the heart of God and what His will for them was. And most of the time, it was stop being a screw-up. Okay? Because a prophet just basically speaks the will of God. And in Hosea chapter 2, Hosea chapter 2, verse 14. However, in the future, I will lure her, like I will seduce her, I will lure her back, Israel, into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. From there I will give back to her vineyards to her, turn her valley of trouble into opportunity for hope. There she will sing as she did when she was young, when she came up from the land of Egypt. At that time, declares Yahweh, you will call me my husband. You will never call me my master, for I will remove the names of the Baal idols from your lips so that you will never again utter their names. That's important. So, key prophetic passages about the new covenant 
are Ezekiel chapter 11, Hosea 2, Joel 2, and Jeremiah 31. Those four passages are very key. And the New Testament taps into those four passages multiple times to make its arguments. Hosea 2, Joel 2, Ezekiel 11, and Jeremiah 31. So, how can you argue with the author that we're still under the Mosaic Covenant when the Mosaic Covenant said, I'm temporary? That's a silver bullet. If you think the Mosaic Covenant is the absolute authority on all things and that you must obey the Mosaic Covenant in order to be perfected, then the Mosaic Covenant just commanded you to put it aside and go towards Jesus because that's how you become perfect. So you have to obey it. So in that way, does the Mosaic Covenant perfect you? Yes. Because the Mosaic Covenant says, leave me behind and go to the thing that I'm pointing towards. And that's the purpose of the law. And that's why the Mosaic Covenant is beautiful, good, and not sinful, evil, or bad, and obsolete, and abolished in that sense. That's why the Mosaic Covenant is fulfilled in Christ.